Welcome to UX Soup, a short-form podcast that looks beyond the buzzwords to give you the latest on developments that will impact the user experience of personal devices and services in the home, in the car, and while mobile. I'm Lisa Cooper, and as always, I'm joined by my co-hosts, Derek Vita. Hello. And Chris Schreiner. Hello. As always, UX Soup is presented by Strategy Analytics, a global research and consulting firm providing a wide range of clients all over the world with insights, analysis, and expertise. So we asked you to send us emails. If you had any questions that you wanted Derek, Chris, or myself to answer, and you have. So let's go through these emails, shall we? Um, okay, who shall we start with first? Joe asks, how did you get your start in user experience? User experience found me. I didn't necessarily find user experience. So first, when I was first out of school, my first post-bachelor's job was for a research clinic associated with the University of Washington that basically was anthropology. Just watch people all day and code behavior and then have to go back and clean data later and find patterns and things like that. I then went from that into automotive human factors research. And somewhere along the way, <laughs> after about the year 2004, uh, someone decided that the letters U and X looked really cool together. Now, for some reason, I'm considered a UX researcher as well. Yeah, UX wasn't around then, was it? <laughs> I predate even that, so I uh, UX wasn't really around. It was just human factors, and I wasn't even aware or involved in that. I was in graduate school in a cognitive psychology program, looking at neural networks of the brain and expecting to become a professor at some small college somewhere in some stuffy office. <laughs> but as life events changed. I ended up with that psychology degree, landing a job at uh, the Virginia Tech Transportation Institute. And I always had a very weird interest in transportation. I would draw maps constantly as a child. <laughs> I didn't know that about you. I did the same, actually. <laughs> so it was, a, it was a very good fit and it, and it just took off from there. Well, for me, I started off in this field in 1992, uh, where I did an ergonomics degree at Loughborough University. It was one of the, I think it was the first one in the country in England to have an ergonomics degree. And in England, ergonomics included not just the physical aspect, it included user-centered design. It was all about user-centered design and human factors. So my bachelor's degree was that. The reason I found that and went into that was because at that time I was an artist and really into, I really was interested in design. I was interested in uh, science. I was interested in many things in research and this just seemed to fit. Um, and then from there, I came across the pond to do a master's degree. That was at Virginia Tech. That was a human factors focused degree, which was totally different in this country. Actually two different uh, ways of doing things. It sounds like uh, for each of us, our college experiences, college experiences were a little bit formative, not just in, in learning about the field, but learning that this was a field that even existed. 
So I, I didn't even know that human factors was a thing until my last quarter at the University of Washington in 2002, when I took a intro to human factors class, just as a, a last throwaway and realized that, wow, like it, it, applying all of those principles of cognitive psychology to things that people use every day, it was absolutely transformative. Yeah. And, and that was, everything was covered in that degree. It's like we had to learn psychology, we had to learn physics, biometrics, anthropometrics. That bachelor's degree was really extremely valuable and very in-depth. And I feel like that really set the scene for me, that bachelor's degree, more so than the, the master's degree, to be honest. Uh, next on, to, let me go through our <laughs> Who do we have next? Eric asks, what are the key pain points for virtual conferences in the COVID era that organizers need to address? So recently I chaired a conference, so I got a, a front row seat to uh, what works and what doesn't work, not just for attendees, but for organizers and for sponsors and exhibitors. I'd say the key thing that it, it needs some improvement is is still the networking elements. And we've touched on this in several episodes on telework and on remote parties. And in this conference, it was very difficult to get attendees over to visit the virtual exhibitions right? because they're there at their desk and they've got emails coming in. There are no breaks that they can go roam around tables while having a cookie and a glass of water. You have to go into this virtual space to just watch videos or have a, you know, a text chat with the exhibitor it's it's hard to drive traffic over there. Well, from the attendee side, I would imagine well, I've attended a conference during this time. And I think we spoke about this in previous episodes as well. It's Zoom fatigue is definitely a thing. Trying to keep up with the chat, keep up with the speaker, keep up with no, any notes that you might be writing as well. Trying to stay engaged and networking. It's all really exhausting and going from one speaker to another all on Zoom is definitely very, very challenging and tiring. They tend to be less interactive as well. Less questions Absolutely. coming in. Yeah. I wish I had a better answer here, but it's just not the same experience putting everything online. I'm, I'm, I don't know about our listeners, but I am completely webinared out at this point. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to Harper, who asked, what was your first car? My first car was a hand-me-down from my grandmother. It was a 1990 Buick Century with a cassette deck and had the, the faux wood paneling on the interior. It was certainly a car. <laughs> <laughs> my first car was a 1986 Chevy Cavalier that had sat outside for a while and had some things living in it <laughs> in the engine. The back doors would not open. So if I had more than one person going along with me, we either, they either had to awkwardly climb through the front seat or do it Dukes of Hazard style. But my second car, my second car was the infamous Sterling 825 SL, which if you look at the list of world's worst cars ever made, any list like that worth its salt will have that car on it. Nice. Um, I loved that car, but if it was below 50 degrees and raining, 
you would turn the car off and the battery would not shut off and nobody could ever fix that. Not ideal. Wow. Um, well, my first car was a Ford Fiesta. It was a diesel. That's all. It was a decent car. It was an old, old car, but it was great. That's all I got. Nippy. <laughs> I loved my Ford Fiestas. I had another one after that one, and then I drove a Mini. They were considered at that time throwaway cars. They would be just, they were just very cheap cars. Okay, what else do we have? We go rustling through my bag, my, my mail bag. <laughs> What was the last piece of tech you bought? Or alternatively, what was the best or worst tech decision you ever made, Dave asks? The worst tech decision I ever made was right after joining this company. <laughs> my, my boss, when I joined, because we do a lot of traveling, my boss said, all right, you can buy yourself a phone, whatever phone you want. And I said, really? He said, yes. And this was 2008. The iPhone had just come out a year before. And I did not choose the iPhone. <laughs> the reason being, I felt guilty because it was the most expensive phone out there that to join this company as a new employee to say, all right, I can buy any phone. I'm going to buy the most expensive <laughs> phone out there. I felt a little guilty doing that so i ended up with a motorola q because <laughs> i figured oh i'd have to write a lot of emails that phone did not last me very long and i still regret that decision to this day i've enjoyed the uh, oculus quest oculus quest i think for me that's even though they've come out with another one now it's oculus quest 2 that's been the most interesting and fun piece of tech that i've bought Actually, that was the first time I had fun exercising <laughs> because you got to do it to games and you're fully immersed. And it was just a lot of fun. It's very difficult to explain why. You can't really put, couldn't really put my finger on it. It was just such a fun experience to experience virtual reality in that way. How about you, Derek? Uh, so recently I wanted to upgrade my in-car experience. So at the time, anyway, I had a mid-2000s crossover SUV that didn't have the big touchscreen on it. And I, I'm not a huge fan of using my smartphone. And so I wanted some sort of portable device that I could use for navigation directions, things like that. So I got a Garmin, it's a Garmin Speak that had Alexa on board. I, I don't know what I was thinking. It, it's, it didn't provide any value to me Alexa at the time was not particularly useful, especially in the car. You had to pair your phone to it anyway to get the full functionality. Had a very limited space where it provided next turn directions. Mistake. <laughs> okay. Brenda asks, what's your favorite project you've ever worked on? Or maybe your favorite research story you tell at dinner parties? It's a great question. I have to but think you about can that. Talk about because I because <laughs> yeah, I know exactly. It's proprietary as well. My favorite experience, or my most memorable experience, uh, was very early on in my career. I was doing a project that involved riding along with police officers in Alexandria, Virginia, 
And that in itself is a very eye-opening experience to see what they deal with on a day-to-day basis. The point of the project was evaluating some in-vehicle terminal that they were wanting to implement that gave them greater functionality in a centralized place. So I would sit in the front seat with the police officer, and one day they got a call that there was a suspected, someone that they had suspected of committing an armed robbery had fled on foot into these woods. So we parked up. On the side of the road, there was about a 100-foot clearing between the car and the woods. And the policeman went to get out of the car to go scan the woods to see if the suspect was in there. And as he exited the car, he stopped, looked in, and on the back in between the seats hung up was a, a rifle that was locked and latched. And he just looked at me, and he looked at the rifle, and he unlocked it. And he said, if anybody comes running toward this car, you use this. And then he ran off. <laughs> Whoa. And so here I am, this 20-something, fresh out of grad school researcher, asking what I got myself into. <laughs> Thankfully, it was the longest 20 minutes of my life, but he, he came back. Nobody was in there. All of that, Derek. I, I can't. I'm sorry. Close the session down. <laughs> So I was also fortunate enough to spend a portion of my earlier career at Virginia Tech Transportation Institute, and I bounced around a whole bunch of different projects. Uh, One of the more memorable ones was a nighttime project on the smart road for very long story short, uh, modeling visibility and and what goes into making roadway objects visible and less visible, things like that. Uh, And it involved buying all sorts of different props, including deer hunting decoys and figuring out how to make them uh, more or less visible for a, a project. It was, I, I don't know why that sticks out in my mind, but shout out to Ron Gibbons and the infrastructure team at uh, VTTI. That was, uh, it was a very formative experience. I think for me, what stands out would be when I was working for HUSAT Research Institute, which is, it's a research center that's part of Loughborough University. And so I was only maybe 20, early, very, very early 20s. And for the project I was doing, I I actually had to talk to people, the designers of accessibility products. Actually, there's two, there's two things that uh, during that time, I had two different projects. And one was to talk to them, to those designers. And that's where I found out that they just took their co-workers and had them ride around in wheelchairs, say, oh, that'll do. <laughs> that was the extent of the user-centered design at that time, very long time ago. And the other project around that time, I was talking with farmers because I was looking at accidents when it came to operating tractors and farm equipment. So I was speaking to them and trying to understand how a PTO works and how the kinds of things that they were doing that would that would get them into these accidents. So that's another project that was memorable, just going around an early 20-something, renting a car and just driving around, just talking. I just One of my favorite parts of my job is talking to all different kinds of people and learning about their context and their, what they do and who they are and what they need, which actually that's my question to you two. What's your favorite part of, of your job? That's mine. You nailed it. Well, it, even more specifically than that, being able to formulate 
questions or little things that you do in a session that will elicit the most organic response. That is what I love. That's my favorite part of the job. So it's not just about tell me a time when you did blah, 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 or what do you think about this particular icon? Because if you just present a question like that, you're going to get a very specific and bounded response. Whereas you can ask questions in a different way that would get a much more interesting response. Just like, you know, even little follow-ups like tell me more or the way that you intone, you know, tell me more or "Hmm, that's interesting and getting someone comfortable enough so that they will give you their most inner self. Like that's what I love about what I do. I'd say my favorite part is anytime that there is something that I hadn't expected that has nothing to do with the device or service that we might be looking at that has a profound impact on on the research. So as an example, a long time ago, I worked on a, a project comparing a couple of uh, low-end mobile phones in India that were targeted for low-income segment. This one phone was trying to supplant the leader in that space. And they worked really hard on on having a very usable phone where it would be fewer steps than the competitor at sending a text message or getting to various features that they knew were important for that group. But almost everybody still favored the more familiar phone. And we couldn't understand why they kept making errors with the new one, even though by all other measures it seemed to be a more an easier phone to use. And it, what it came down to is that a lot of the people in that segment couldn't read. So they had memorized what buttons to press to get to a particular feature or function and to do what they needed to do. And even though the competitor phone was objectively, in terms of steps, easier, they had their pattern memorized. So it's findings like that that, that yeah, really I agree. grab me. Context of use. And it's not just, you know, where people use it. It's everything about their life experience before that point, right? That goes into how they're going to use that. It's absolutely critical. There's one other really formative experience that sticks out. And I tell this story a lot, so I apologize if I'm repeating stories. But when I was in grad school, the advanced human factors class went up to Fairchild Air Force Base and talked to air refueling operators aboard the KC-135, which is the basically the air refueling aircraft. Got a big boom that's sticks outside a big 1950s era Boeing aircraft and talk to the AROs about this workstation in the back of this aircraft where they have to lie prone on their stomachs and look out this little tiny window down this boom. And all of the horror stories, like for example, especially with the the shorter women who are a bigger portion of the Air Force nowadays, they can't reach the controls they can barely see out the window. Sometimes even if they can see out the window, uh, there'll be hydraulic leaks or whatever, kind of obscuring the window. But if you ask the AROs, like, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? They're like, oh, it's fine. We make it work because that's just the military mindset. We just make it work. So that's a perfect example of you can't just ask questions like, do you like X or do you like right. Y? You have to actually look at them in context and see what is objectively working for them and and what's not. So that was another very formative experience. Very true. Okay, on to Kevin's question. Could you tell him what the theme tune is, please? Ooh, yeah. Oh, yes. When we were getting together to talk about how we wanted 
uh, this podcast to look. Of course, the theme music was was going to be an important element to it. It had it was going to kick off every episode and every episode. So we wanted something that we all liked. And thankfully, our musical tastes don't seem to be incompatible. <laughs> True. That's um, why cool. <laughs> so we've really quickly agreed upon our theme tune. And one of the other criteria that we had for it is that we wanted it to have some kind of tie-in to the show. So the one song that we found that ticked all of those boxes is the one that we use, and it's called Kinda Makes You Feel Good by Andre Costello and the Cool Miners, which I believe is a indie band out of Pittsburgh. Yes, indeed. Shout out to Andre Costello and the Cool Miners. Okay, let's uh, just do one more. Do you feel like we have time for one more? What advice would you give someone just starting out in UX? That's a tough question to answer because jobs in UX or human factors or interface design or whatever can vary in remit and vertical and everything else. What I would say to start with is think about what sort of problem space do you thrive in at an extremely high level? If you like taking a single problem and attacking it from all angles and improving on it and getting buy-in from other people to say, hey, look, this is a problem, look at an internal position somewhere at a, a hardware maker, a software maker, go into the military, something like that. If you like looking at a number of different problems and doing something different every day, then maybe look at hopping onto a consultancy or something like that. Agreed. What do you think, Chris? In addition to what Derek said, the advice I think I give out the most is to get yourself out there and meet as many people as you can. (laughs) I advise as early as you can Go to conferences, present at conferences, hang out during the breaks in between, ask questions, go up to people after their talks and just talk to them. One thing I found about our field is that we do tend to look out for each other, willing to help, willing to help each other out, willing to introduce people to other people. Quite honestly, I don't like that that can be such a central part, but it is, and the earlier that you can get yourself out there and meet as many people as you can. I think that's fantastic advice. It's one of the challenges of this field in general is that we can all come from it, come to it from different areas, whether it's psychology, whether it's engineering, graphic design, whatever. And so when you're in school or maybe your first internships, you end up with a very narrow vocabulary when it comes to just how things get done. And the more that you get yourself out there and meet people who kind of have the same interests but might be coming from different areas and have different words for the same concepts, you sort of broaden your vocabulary for those things. There's a challenge that I've found with being in this field. It's hard to be the one that calls the baby ugly. So So true. And by that, I mean, if you're within a company... And you're the one that's saying, you know what, this doesn't work. Um, we need to do we need to do X, not Y. 
number one, you have to make sure that you put forward things that are right with, with the product. You have to be very careful with how you present uh, the issues. And you may not be listened to, but you still have to do it anyway. That's your job. And whether departments listen to what you say or not, you still have to do your job. A very knowledgeable design director I worked with uh, at one time called uh, being a, a good UX researcher or human factors researcher that's embedded within an org, about 25% scientist and 75% high school guidance counselor. <laughs> yes. You you need to be able to you need to be able to actually do the research and uh, like we talked about know how to frame problems and frame questions, but you also just need to know how to talk to people in general and get buy-in from other stakeholders and know how to make the medicine go down. Thank you. You you worded that. That's what I'm trying to get at is is being able to have that capacity to talk to different people at different levels from designers to managers, engineers, having that quality or developing that quality is very important. And again, you still may not be heard, even if, despite your best efforts, uh, but having that quality definitely helps. Okay, so it looks like we're going to wrap this up. Thank you to everyone that wrote in with their questions. We really appreciate it. We had a really nice discussion. Um, we learned some new things about each other that we didn't know. So that's good. Thanks to everybody for listening, by the way. This is uh, a great experience this year, uh, getting to explore all sorts of different topics that we work on and to get to hear your feedback was great too. So thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Keep those emails coming at uxsoup at strategyanalytics.com. A reminder that UX Soup is presented as always by Strategy Analytics. You can check out the latest user-focused insights at sa-ux.com. Please remember to subscribe, like, or review UX Soup on your favorite podcast platform or by visiting our show page at ux-soup.com. You can also visit that show page to follow Chris, myself, or Derek on LinkedIn or Twitter. Bye for now. <laughs>